What's up, family? You are tuned to Law & Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. On today's show, Samora Abiyomi Penderhues. I really deeply respect the work that is already being done by so many people around, you know, the data and highlighting the, the corporations and highlighting the ways that the prison industrial complex is uh, making money, you know, off of human warehousing and caging. Um, But I think as an artist, you know, my unique opportunity is to go direct to the emotional and story level. From KPFA and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Jesse Strauss. As conversations about abolition have found their way into more popular discussions since the uprisings after George Floyd was killed, We've seen those concepts become more central among political activists struggling to explore avenues for safety that don't rely on policing and imprisonment. Political organizing and cultural work go hand in hand. Today we speak with an artist whose eight years of interviews and research about structural violence are being shared publicly in the form of an album called Grief, as well as an interactive exhibit entitled The Healing Project. It's free to the public at the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts in San Francisco through September 4th. Samora Pinderhues is a Juilliard-trained pianist and composer. He is a multidisciplinary artist, a black surrealist, an abolitionist, and a product of the Berkeley High School Jazz Program. His musical collaborators have included the cutting edge of black American music, including Herbie Hancock, Common, Layla Hathaway, Robert Glasper, and his own sister, Elena Pinderhues. Samora, thank you for joining us. Uh, it's a pleasure and an honor. I really appreciate it. Well, we're going to dive into the album and the interactive exhibit, but I wanted to first take a little step back and talk about your Bay Area roots and how your experiences here led you to your work today. On a personal note, I want to mention I can't hear your name without remembering wandering down the street on Telegraph Ave in Berkeley like it must have been 20 years ago to mm-hmm. randomly come across you and your sister two wildly talented kids playing music on the street corner yeah that used to be the spot <laughs> you all must have been young in my imagination it's like you were 10 years old and i was blown away yeah i just remember um so vividly those times of uh, elena and i playing on the street uh we would play at the farmer's market and we would play at telegraph avenue and um it was just a beautiful experience because in addition to being able to play together and develop our relationship together as family, but also like, you know, hone our craft, we also just met everybody that would pass by and we pretty much just like knew the whole community by, you know, years of, of playing on the street. You know, you, you talked about being raised by the community. If you could talk a little bit about how you got uh, politically focused and politically aware as a young person. Yeah, I mean, you know, the first place that came was definitely from my parents and from my family in general. You know, I mean, I always start with that, just thinking about my name. Um, you know, I was named Samora after Samora Michelle, who was the um, head of the anti-colonialist Liberation Army in Mozambique and the first uh, democratically elected president, later assassinated by the United States, um, a pan-Africanist, you know, um, anti-capitalist. So. You know, that's the lineage that I was clearly from. My parents are, you know, um, teachers, community organizers, activists. And um, my grandmother, you know, was um, one of the first ever Black genealogists. So, you know, like, I definitely was raised 
with that energy. From a very young age, I think one of the things I always think about is that I was always treated as never too young to actually engage in thinking about things. You know, my grandparents of both both sides of my family, you know, and my parents as well would just, they would take me seriously even as a kid and talk to me about what was happening in the world, you know. Um, and I always, I just really appreciate that as a as an older person because it gave me confidence to really like speak on things that I believed in, to think about things I was reading from a young age. And then on top of that, you know, always being instilled with the sense that it is important to be accountable and be responsible, not just for yourself, but for your community and, you know, to learn about things like, you know, structural violence, things like incarceration, abolition, you know, militarism. These were things that were just like talk, being talked to me from very young. And, you know, being on this program, I have to say also that one of the consistent presences in my household was KPFA, you know, another was Democracy Now. And so, you know, I was listening to that every morning and, and I think, you know, it seeps into you. So that really shaped a lot of my politics growing up. As an artist and as a person, I was always encouraged to, you know, think that way, to make art that way, and also just to, you know, really think critically about what was happening around me. Thank you so much for tying some of those ends together, because I want to bring us into a conversation about your current projects and the themes that you mentioned about structural violence. You spent eight years doing interviews with people who've encountered structural violence, and the interviews have kind of culminated into your your own album and also this exhibit at the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts. The exhibit is called The Healing Project. It's a multidisciplinary combination of audio pieces and visual art, an altar, projections, curated interviews, short documentaries, video art pieces. The first thing that visitors see when they walk in are a series of cassette tapes that hold some of the interviews you did that you also scored musically. So I want to bring our listeners there for a minute. We're going to hear an interview that's featured on one of those cassette tapes. This is the voice of Keith Lamar, who is a prisoner who has lived on Ohio's death row since 1993. He is scheduled to be executed in November of 2023. This prison stuff, man. Um, you have one minute remaining. You know, the truly like tragic element of my situation that is not personal. Mm. You know, it's not really. We don't have anything against you, Keith Lamar. You know, this could happen to anybody. And you know, like George Floyd, that could have been easily somebody else, Armand Arbery. They could have just as easily, you know what I mean? And, it, and that's the real scary thing about it. You know, you know that there's some random and arbitrary, but that's my calculation to design because the whole point of it is to instill fear. You know, and, and you know the fact that I've been walking around here for 20 odd years. You know, I've been walking around as a uh, as a symbol, as a warning. You know, and, and I'm sure I'm supposed to be doing a whole lot worse than I actually am. And then I will be a real, like, emblem of what happens to somebody who stands up against the system. You know, but I don't think I'm uh, like the, the best poster child for somebody who has been broken. And so, you know, they keep me in isolation, you know, keep, keep me in. You know what I mean? And it's almost like the Bible smears. Thank you for using GTL. You are listening to Law and Disorder. That was the voice of Keith Lamar, a prisoner living on Ohio's death row. His voice is featured heavily in The Healing Project. 
Samora, can you talk a little bit about your conversations with Keith, but also the interview process in general that you went through in the development of the project? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, obviously, first of all, yeah, I mean, shout out to Keith. Like, that's my brother. And um, he is just an, an amazing, amazing human being. As you mentioned, you know, his his execution date is set for next year. And we are, you know, really trying to work hard to obviously not just get him not to be executed, but to get him to be released. Basically, he was blamed for a riot that happened that he did not cause and um, the prison blamed him for it. And that's why he's on death row. Such an example of all the things that I talk about in terms of state violence, you know, not only causing the violence, but also like then creating these smoke screens, you know, where they don't have to be accountable for the violence that they create. And then, you know, sacrificing people at the altar of that violence, you know what I mean? Mm. And that's what's, you know, so tragic about it. And I just love Keith so much. And I hope that we all work, you know, to help free him. If people want to, you know, be involved in that, they can visit his site at KeithLamar.org or just find information, you know, through all of my, all of my work. But that is really at the heart of this project. The healing project is folks like Keith, who not only are experiencing what they're experiencing, but are literally the most brilliant, caring and loving individuals that I've ever met. And I think my real point with this project is that when we think about where the problems are and then where the solutions are, we have very specific ideas of who those people are that we go to for all those things. And I think it's all wrong. It's all messed up, you know? And the problems are where we tend to actually look for the solutions at and vice versa. And so I wanted to just highlight um, not only the experiences, but the insights, the ideas, and the brilliances of people who so often are thrown away by our society. Um, as far as the interviews themselves, I mean, the biggest thing that it was was just time. You know, out of the eight years, five years of those years was literally just the conversations. And the reasons it took so long was that I didn't want to just talk to people one time for one hour. You know, I didn't want this to be an extractive process where, you know, I was just like doing very surface level connection with people and then going and do whatever I wanted to do. You know, this is about a collaborative process with the people I'm speaking to, that they're being so vulnerable, giving so much of themselves. I wanted it to really respect and represent them at that highest level, you know? And so a lot of it was just literally years and years of conversations, many of which aren't recorded, you know, and some of which were. And then the process after that, because it was, you know, hundreds of hours, was just really like listening to the music of those voices and also listening to the ideas that people shared and the experiences that people shared and trying to, basically the way I think about it is almost like putting all of these folks around a table, but they've never actually met, you know, but they share so much and they share so much with all of us who have the privilege to listen. And so that's kind of how I approach the process. And we heard the voice of Keith Lamarck. Who were some of the other people or other types of people who you spoke to? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm glad that you asked me that question because I think oftentimes people can think that the project is only about incarceration because that is, you know, a focus and it is an abolitionist project. But for me, part of the point of it was that I was tying all these different realities together. And, you know, so there's a, a big part of the project just about... um like loss and grieving and what, you know, how people move through that process and also how that process can often be distorted or taken advantage of because of the systems we've set up. And so I talked to a lot of young people, like a lot of people that, you know, have never been through prison or anything, maybe in their teens or twenties, 
but you know maybe are dealing with violence on you know us a very common basis have lost a lot of friends to violence and um as a result of that process you know they're carrying a lot of things um and i think oftentimes in the wider popular culture world people don't see that they're carrying those things you know they just see uh their anger or how they carry you know or, or maybe sometimes even what they do but they don't really respect what they're going through so i talked to a lot of young people for the project and you know then i also just talked to a lot of um folks in in different contexts and situations with with um structural violence people who have experienced you know being unhoused people who um are undocumented immigrants who had gone through the system of detention which i think oftentimes like gets left out of the conversation around incarceration and caging um so just trying to tie all these experiences together and show how the systems the systems are certainly tied together so you know the experiences we have to support each other through that as well you know you called the project you said it is an abolitionist project and then earlier you said that it was important to talk about solutions and i wonder sometimes as abolitionists it can be difficult to come up with solutions that really are outside of the realm of state violence and so i'm wondering was it conversations with the people you were interviewing who said oh i just want this this and this like is it clear is there a process that you went through to try to pull some of those solutions out yeah i mean i think that really is the heart of it for me is that i think the solutions are an expansive building process around the things that people have already figured out what they need to do simply because they had to you know and also i think another thing i discovered is that many of the solutions we used to have that they were and they were robbed from us you know because um it's uh they they're not convenient to you know racial capitalism and the systems that we currently have and so i think a lot of those things yeah i mean i had maybe some inklings around what they were but they really came through the interviews and one of the things i'm the most excited for people to experience which certainly happened to me um as i was doing the project is that i think the solutions that come through the project they're a combination of structural and deeply personal you know and some of the so some of the things that people are saying are yes this is how we should build our society these are the things that we need structurally for our healing these are the things that need to be dismantled and these are what need to be built but it's also like a day-to-day set of things too of like for instance this society has never taught any of us how to deal with grief you know and has and it has robbed us of actual healing grieving processes and so everything we have around that is is really poisonous for us you know and that's something that we can all relate to especially in this moment and so some of the things that people talked about was literally just how they deal with that and i think those tools are really important for us to build a society that you know is built around care and not around punishment which is what abolition is about but yes in addition to that people also put forth real solutions about you know not just tearing down the walls of the prison which to be quite frank is very necessary but it's also to like what we want to build you know and it's um it's so many different things but i think that's part of what sometimes becomes daunting for people is that it's not just one thing but for me that's what's exciting you know and it's certainly possible i mean we certainly have enough to to make those things happen but um you know 
it is many things and those things are structural, you know, their food and shelter and, you know, meaningful and dignified work for people, but it's also, you know, mental and emotional and spiritual, to be quite honest. I want to focus on one of the elements that you just brought up, grief. I I think a lot of conversations about the prison industrial complex and abolition really try to hone in on the political sides and the funding sides and those kind of logistical things that we can hold in our hands, which are, of course, an important part of the conversation. Your album that you released on April 15th is called Grief. And I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit more about why you chose to call the album Grief and also the idea of of focusing an abolitionist project on grief and on healing as opposed to bringing the focus to those kind of material political conversations? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question, and I do completely agree. I mean, I think one of the thing, reasons I did that is exactly what you, what you said, which is that I really deeply respect the work that is already being done by so many people around, you know, the data and highlighting the, the corporations and highlighting the ways that the prison industrial complex is uh, making money, you know, off of, you know, human warehousing and caging, um, which is very much what is happening. Um, but I think as an artist, you know, my unique opportunity is to go direct to the emotional and story, you know, story level. And I also think that it's narrative work, you know, and I think one of the things that happens with prisons and detention centers and all of that is that people become so quickly objectified. You know, if they're not people that are your friends or family, they're either numbers or they're objects or they just don't exist, you know, and these are all the reasons that all the corporations that run the private prisons or the detention centers have super generic names. So you can't remember what they are. They're the reasons that the prisons are not in the center of the city. They're far away. So you don't have to think about them, you know, so everything is designed so that, you know, a person who doesn't have to experience it doesn't have to think about it, you know? And so I really wanted to create a situation where it was impossible for it to be that, you know, if you listen to the record, you have to feel something, hopefully, you know, that's the goal of it. And then the reason why I called it grief, I think that's partly a personal thing, you know, which is just that obviously I really wanted this album to be a portrait of these times. And, you know, we have all experienced so much collective grief in these last few years and some, you know, even more than more than others. And I really think it's important for us to figure out how to move with that and through that and alongside that. Um, but in addition, I think that oftentimes with emotions like that, that we don't know what to do with or don't have the language for as a society, with those that are going through them, particularly those who are either poor or, you know, black and brown or LGBTQ, whatever, like we just say they're going through something and just throw them away or lock them up or whatever, instead of actually being present inside of these feelings, not just for ourselves, but with others. And I just wanted to honor the realities of that process and how complicated it is, how complex we are as people. I wanted to shift gears a little and dive straight into the music because we've been hearing from Samora Pinder Hughes, who's an abolitionist who has developed this project with interviews over many years to dive into structural violence. But 
Samora Pender Hughes first is a musician. The album that you just released, Grief, that we were talking about, the music is a little hard to describe. It has elements of classical, has elements of jazz, of soul. And really, when I listened to the whole album, I heard it as kind of a beautiful, a spiritual kind of exploration. It's hard to pin down into one thing. Let's listen to one part of one of the songs from that album, and then I want to talk about some of the album's themes. Young men come down from that tower. It isn't yet your time. I'll tell you five years later, you made it out alive. Blame games gonna lead to that pill. For real, it's such a thrill. You might get lost in the darkness I'm sensing so much anger Wait till you put it on You made best friends with danger It lives inside your walls Someone's catching it tonight You lose your pride You let it rain down Show you all Cause you're a man It's what you do And it don't matter What you have been through Yeah you're a weapon Yeah you're a gun You ain't no father You ain't no son You might be canvas You might be pain Just hide that damage It fade away Yeah you're a menace Play out your role and loop that record and lose on the count of three. Am I gonna hurt somebody if I feel these things? Is it gonna hurt me on the count of three? I can hear my heart is running if I let it see. Will it just erase me? Masculinity. song called masculinity from samora pender hughes new album grief samora can you talk about kind of what inspired that song in particular masculinity but also the whole album i know the album also drew from the interviews that you discussed earlier yeah definitely um yeah i also wanted to just say i appreciate what you said about the album in full too and and not being able to pin it down to one genre i think that was very intentional for me um you know, I really wanted to not think about, you know, one one specific genre, but really just like make music that could touch any person's soul, you know, in terms of like any place that they were at. And I think that, you know, the the artist that inspired me the most, like a Nina Simone, like that's kind of how I feel about it. And and the word spiritual use that that was my guiding, you know, force for sure. As far as the song masculinity is concerned. Um, one of the things I love about the songwriting process is that for me, like songs take a lot of time to write because I care about the lyrics so much. And so I'll usually write them in, you know, stages and I'll get different inspirations at different points. And uh, you mentioned that, you know, the interviews kind of were a jumping off point for a lot of things. So in this case, 
you know, I, I did one of the interviews with somebody that I was talking about a completely different thing, actually. And then they started talking to me. Um, shout out to Oscar. Appreciate you. He started talking to me about his experiences in the men's group and, uh, you know, like examining his conceptions of masculinity and, you know, things like that. And it just really struck a chord within me. And I started, you know, doing some thoughts and some seeking of my own about my own processes and practices and how I feel I really am in the world versus what the world tells me it is to be a man and how I have or haven't internalized that. Samora, we are running out of time, but I wanted to ask you one last question. You put eight years of work and research and interviews into the exhibit. You put work into this album. What comes next for Samora Penderhues? That is a great question. Well, one thing that I can say, which is exciting to say on here, is that the immediate next is that the exhibition at um, Yerba Buena has been extended till September 4th. So um, people will be able to see it and experience it for even longer, which I'm really excited about. I've had a beautiful experience so far there. And in addition to what we have been doing presenting it, we're also going to be activating it in different ways with live performance, conversation, um, ritual, um, film screenings, all these different community events, all free and, and open to the public political education. So I'm excited about that. And then in addition, um, there will be a digital archive version of the Healing Project, which is coming soon. And then also there's another record I have in the can. I don't know when that is coming out, but there is definitely more music on the way. Well, we're looking forward to hearing it. Thank you so much for joining us, Samora. I'm deeply honored. I appreciate you so much. Samora Pender-Hughes exhibit, The Healing Project, is free and open to the public at Yerba Buena Center for the Arts in San Francisco, now through September 4th. His album, Grief, is available on Bandcamp and streaming services. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about our topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis. That's D-I-S. And subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. We're